Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be looking at one of the clearest presentations of the gospel that exists in all of the Bible. In these three short verses, you really learn all that you need to know about what it means to be saved by grace. His resurrection results in our salvation. Thinking upon that, I wonder how frequently our minds are drawn to the resurrection of Christ as we think about what it is He has done for us. Many Christians today would think twice about willingly and voluntarily living in a country where they were deprived of religious liberty. They would face discrimination, persecution, penalties, jail, if they were to violate these strict laws about what religion is acceptable and which is not. The prospect of suffering is one that we don't face willingly. A person might well hesitate to join a Christian group for fear of the consequences or quietly opt out because the demands are just too great to follow Jesus. To be a Christian in Peter's time was faced with great difficulty and hardship. Christians were not embraced in the Roman world. They certainly were not embraced by the Jews who had denounced this Messiah. And so in the beginning verses that we see here in Peter that we won't read today, it sets the table, if you will, for who who Peter is actually communicating to. He's communicating to churches all around Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And it's interesting that he calls them aliens because he wants for them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this earth is not their true home. We need to be reminded of that reality in our own lives, that this is not our true home. In verses 6 and 7, Peter describes the kind of difficulty and hardship that is going to exist within the lives of Christians. And as we think about Easter today, as we celebrate the resurrection, this is a day amongst all days that we should rejoice in what Jesus has done because it's a reminder of the reason that we have to rejoice. Despite the persecution or the hardship or the suffering or the challenges we face in our life, this of all days is one in which we should rejoice in what God has done for us. Let's look at what it says here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Would you pray with me, please? Father, would you allow our hearts to truly understand the truth of your word? Would you remove from us all distractions, all hardships, all uncertainties? Would you give to us the ability to give to you and your word our absolute undivided attention? Would you speak to us through these words? Would you remind us of the richness of of this gift of salvation that has come about as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lord. 
Father, we pray that your word would not return back to you void, that it would accomplish your intent in every heart and every life to bring you glory and honor through the lives that we choose to live while on this earth. Would you bless this time for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this in three major sections. The first section is the call to praise. Verse 3 begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is that we are to praise Him. It doesn't matter where we are in our life. It doesn't matter how difficult things in our life. We are to praise Him. That word blessed here means to speak well of. It originates within the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew practice. Blessing God is rooted in the Old Testament and it is an expression of love and faith and devotion. In Jewish worship, there is this thing called the 18 blessings. The 18 blessings blessings were recited three times each day in the synagogue, and each one ended with the refrain, Blessed be thou, O Lord. Imagine being in the temple and hearing, Blessed be the Lord, repeated 54 times in the course of a day by every person who entered. What a beautiful sound it would be, much like what we will hear in heaven when we hear the words, Holy, Holy, Holy. Blessed be Thou, O Lord. Blessed be the Lord. That phrase appears 47 times in Scripture. I'm going to give you a sampling of this all the way back in Genesis in chapter 24. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. First Chronicles 16:36. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. In Job 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the Psalms we read, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. 31.21 Blessed be the Lord, for He has made marvelous His loving kindness to me in a besieged city. In Psalm 72, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. What should the church of Jesus Christ do? We should bless the Lord. We should praise His holy name, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't a call to praise a generic God, but a specific God. It is Jehovah. It is the One who is the Father of the risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah. And what we need to remember here is this. Christianity is very, very exclusive. There is no room for the little G God, but a call to praise the one and only God. We are to praise the name of God Say it with me, would you? Blessed be the Lord, the God and Father of Jesus Christ. I didn't do that right, did I? Let's do blessed be thou, O Lord. Let's repeat that together. All right? Blessed be thou, O Lord. Fifty-four times in the temple that was recited every day by every person. What are we to praise Him for? We are to praise Him for the gift of our salvation. As Peter expands upon the praiseworthy gift of salvation, he specifically mentions three aspects of our salvation. The first one is this. It is the mercy of salvation. He says in verse 3, "...who according to His great mercy." Mercy is very simply God not giving to us what we deserve. Mercy addresses our miserable 
condition. Now, this is, a certain, this is certainly a challenging thought for Americans today because we think we are entitled to a perfect life. We think that we are entitled to a hardship-free life. Most especially Christians enter into the relationship with God with the hope and sometimes the expectation that now all their problems are going to go away. There won't be any more difficulty for them. And that is not the reality at all. The mercy of God's salvation towards us is going to not give to us what we deserve. There's at least four reasons that we are undeserving of this great gift of mercy in our salvation. Letter A, we are dead in our sins. We enter into this world separated from God because we have inherited a sinful nature from Adam and we are guilty before we've ever walked a step, uttered a word, committed any action. We are guilty before the Lord. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Man doesn't like to deal with sin. Man does not like to be told that he is a sinner and he is separated from God. We like to believe that God loves us and has the ability to look beyond our sin and everything's going to be okay. But we are, in fact, dead in our sins and deserving of death. Letter B, we possess a deceitful heart. Ephesians 2.2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Satan, our enemy, is called the great deceiver. And before Christ, you and I, every non-Christian, is controlled by the satanic powers that exist within this world. We have been deceived into thinking that we deserve good from God. We are deceived into thinking that God is not just in giving out wrath to those who have sinned against Him. We like to believe that God has more love than He has wrath, and somehow we're going to be able to skirt the punishment for our sin. We have a very deceitful heart. We don't see ourselves as we truly are. Let us see. We are corrupt in our mind with sinful desires. We possess a corrupt mind, and we have sinful desires. Ephesians 2.3 goes on to explain, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now the great challenge for you and I is that we would be sanctified from this corrupt mind and away from these lustful desires. When we are saved, our spirit is made new. Our mind and our body is not transformed. That is the process of our sanctification, is our mind being conformed to the truth of God's Word. And so all throughout our lives as Christians, we are being rid of the corruptness that is in our minds, and we are being rid of the desires that we have to pursue sinful things. We've been given the power over these things, but we struggle in appropriating this power and getting rid of these evil desires that we possess. Letter D, we are enslaved to sin and we are destined for hell. Jesus said in John 8:34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Let me ask you this. Have you committed sin? Then you are a slave to sin. And apart from Christ, you have no way of getting beyond this enslavement to sin. But here's the good news. But God, in His great mercy, has made us alive. God has given to us what we don't deserve, and that is 
new life. Ephesians 2, 4-7 goes on to say, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God has made us alive. He has transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. He has given to us what we do not deserve. He has made us alive through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which comes as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second thing that he has done here, letter F, is he has set us free. He has set us free from the bondage of sin. He has set us free from the power of sin. He has set us free from being enslaved to those lustful desires that we have brought into our Christianity. And it is our process of dying to ourselves and living to Christ that enables us to live out the freedom that God has given to us. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for He who has died is freed from sin. When you come to Christ, you die in Him and are made alive in Him. That death in Him, being crucified with Christ, is fixed at the moment of our salvation. But you and I, as we live our lives, we have to continue to choose to die to ourselves so that we can experience the freedom that God has given us from the enslavement to sin. It is this... It is for this that Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He has given to us what we do not deserve. So what should we say to this reality? We should say the exact same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So He's given us the mercy of our salvation. He's given us new birth in our salvation. Verse 3 continues and says, that it has caused us To be born again. That word born again actually means to begat. Have you heard of the begats? The begats all throughout the book of Chronicles, all the genealogies, when so-and-so begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so. And this is the reality, is that the resurrection of Christ, this gift of salvation, has begat us to be a new spiritual being. What is the most famous account in all the Bible about this need to be born again. You remember, we just went through this some time ago. It is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, who was the leader of the Jewish leaders, and he told him in this dialogue, you must be born again. Like Nicodemus, many don't understand the need to be born again. They don't understand what it means to be born again. And so, in Nicodemus's life, Jesus made a very familiar illustration of the reality of the need to be born again. He said in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes him will, believes will in him have eternal life. So this is a very familiar Old Testament narrative that Nicodemus, as a leader of the leaders, would have been very, very familiar with. If you remember your Old Testament, the Israelites are in the wilderness wandering period, And they have sinned and disobeyed against God. God has sent serpents into the camp. The serpents are poisonous and the Israelites are dying. 
So Moses pleads on behalf of the people for God to spare them from this miserable, painful death. And so this is what God tells Moses to do. You're to fashion out this bronze serpent. You're to put it on a staff and you're to hold it high in the camp. And everyone who has been bitten, when they look upon that serpent that has been raised up, they will be spared from their physical death. This is exactly what has to happen for you and I today. We don't look at a bronze serpent on a staff held by some man. We look to the cross where the Son of God has been raised up. And when we look upon Him, we are then set free from the poison of sin and are given the ability to have new life in Christ. We are spared from the spiritual death that is ours and that we deserve as those who have inherited a sinful nature from God. If we will look to the cross, if we will trust in the cross and give ourselves to the one on the cross, then we will be born again. We have this assurance that when we come to Christ, He makes all things new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have done. This mercy in salvation and this new birth in salvation is the result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The third thing that we see is the hope that results from our salvation. Verse 3 in its entirety. Who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not just a hope. It isn't wishful thinking. It is a living hope. Hope. When something is born into this world, it is born into a new existence. It doesn't matter what animal life you're talking about. When something is born into the world, it is born into a new existence. When we are born again spiritually, we are born again into a spiritual world. You can be 75 years old. And when you are born again, your body is the same, but spiritually, you have entered into a new world, you've entered into a new realm, and you have instantly inherited this great gift of eternal life. Spiritual birth is filled with a living hope, and the eventual culmination of this spiritual birth, and that is eternity with God. We are born again for an eternity with the Father in heaven. This is why Peter speaks to these groups that are going to read these words that you are aliens scattered abroad, but your new home is actually going to be in heaven. Biblical hope isn't wishful thinking. It is an absolute confidence in God's ability to complete what He started when He gave to you and I this gift of salvation. This confident hope we have is in our future glorification when we are removed forever from the presence of sin and we enjoy an eternity with God the Father forever and forever and forever. We have a living hope, but the world only has a dead hope. In the book of Job, Bildad, one of the friends, was describing the life of the godless and their eventual destruction that would come. And here's what he says, So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. We read in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 28, The hope of the righteous is gladness, but the expectation of the wicked perishes. You see, in this world without God, 
all of the hope of the lost come to nothing. They work and they toil and they dream a dream that can never be realized because they are without God. You see, we don't possess a dead hope. We don't possess a hope that is dying. We possess a hope that is living. It is moving towards our future glorification. We don't look at the back. We don't look past. We look forward to what is coming from the promise of God towards us. The hope for the Christian comes from the confidence that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We weren't there. We didn't see it. We didn't witness it. We have the historic account. But I tell you this, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't have a confidence in the resurrection, your Christianity is on very, very shaky ground. Confidence in our future glorification. Confidence of the resurrection is what gives to us this living hope. It is only obtained because of and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus was raised, all of God's children will be raised with Him. This is what Easter is all about. Easter is all about the resurrection of Christ. It is the victory over sin and death. It is the assurance that all who are in Christ will be raised with Him on our last day or on His last day. We have a living hope that is moving towards an eternity with God. For the world, Easter is about candy and bunnies and egg hunts and big dinners around the table. In fact, the amount of candy sold at Easter is second only to the amount of candy sold on Halloween. The world has no hope. The world's life is moving to nothing. But for you and I, we are moving towards a confidence because of the resurrection of a living hope of an eternity with God. Now, this living hope that results from our salvation is expressed as an inheritance. Look at what it says in the first part of verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It is the inheritance of our true home. This is why Peter's talking to aliens who are scattered abroad. He's talking to us today as proud Americans that this is not your real home. Our inheritance is our true home. Now, you know what an inheritance is. An inheritance is, a, is wealth or a legacy that is passed down. So when Peter's talking about an inheritance, what exactly is he referring to? Well, in the Old Testament, inheritance was expressed by something physical, and in the life of the Jew, it was expressly understood to be the promised land. Even today in the Middle East, it's in an uproar over the land that was promised as an inheritance to the Israelites. It says in Numbers chapter 26, Among these, the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of the name. So there's all of this fighting in the Middle East about the inheritance that the Jews are so adamant about holding on to. When Peter's talking about an inheritance, it brings to mind that idea for the Jew, but that's not really what it's talking about. In the New Testament, an inheritance is expressed as something spiritual, not something physical. Acts chapter 20, verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those 
who are sanctified. There is this inheritance awaiting us, and that inheritance is our spiritual home. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So we aren't looking forward to a physical inheritance. We are to look forward to our new spiritual home, heaven for all of eternity. There's some references about the dwelling place that God has created for us, and that's not really what we are supposed to be concerned with or what we are looking forward to. Some consider it to be a mansion. Some consider it to be a stately place. The reality is we are going to have a dwelling place in heaven with God forever, and that is our inheritance. Unlike a land that can be invaded, unlike a land that you can be kicked out of, unlike a land that can suffer natural disasters, you and I have an inheritance and a land that is spiritual and can never suffer as this physical world does. Peter describes it like this. This inheritance is imperishable. It is not able to be corrupted. It is not able to die. It cannot be destroyed. We buy a new car. We buy a new house. We get a new suit. And we take a lot of joy in those things. But eventually that house is going to fall apart. Eventually that car is going to have to have an engine rebuilt. Or it's going to need a new paint job. Or it's going to need lots of new tires. It's going to need things over and over and over because it is not going to last forever To find something ancient is truly remarkable and it brings about a sense of awe and wonder about the culture and the custom of the day and it's because things don't last very long. Everything is going to perish at some point. For Israel, their land was invaded by enemies on a regular basis and they were kicked out, they were taken prisoners. They were temporary owners and they could be removed, but this isn't so for the Christian because our inheritance is spiritual. It can never die. It is imperishable. Now this speaks to the eternal security of the believer. Our salvation is permanent. It is imperishable. It cannot die. Secondly, Peter describes it as undefiled. It is unstained. It is not polluted. It is morally and spiritually pure. Everything in this physical world is stained by sin. Some way, some shape, some manner, everything in this physical world is stained by sin. But our inheritance is flawless and it is perfect. It's just as flawless on the day we enjoy the inheritance as it was on the day that it was granted to us. Thirdly, It's described as unfading. It is not subject to decay. It never loses its magnificence. In the Greek culture, this word unfading was used to describe a flower that would never, ever die. I don't know that they had artificial flowers back in the day that this was written. We have some artificial arrangements around here that make the flowers look good all the time. But, you know, at some point, whatever that material is, It's going to deteriorate and it's going to pass away. It's going to die. But our inheritance will never, ever lose its magnificence. It will be as beautiful in the end of eternity, which doesn't ever come, as it was on the very first day. None of the decaying elements of the the world can affect anything within the kingdom of God. None of the ravages of time 
or the evils of sin can touch the believer's inheritance because it is in a timeless, sinless, sinless realm. And number four, it is secured by God. Peter says that it is reserved in heaven for you. This inheritance that Peter is talking about, our salvation, our spiritual home, is reserved in heaven for you. And that word reserved means guarded or watched over. It means it's being protected by God. Now, when we think of a reservation, we think of a reservation as a pretty good thing, right? You go to a restaurant on a Friday night, and you go up, and you get the little vibrating thing, and they say it's going to be 45 minutes to an hour. Hey, if you got a reservation, well, guess what? You go right to the table, don't you? You get to skip the line. You are first to be served. You have a guaranteed seat in the house. It means you'll never, ever be disappointed that you can't get in And that's what it means that our reservation, this inheritance, is secured by God in heaven right now today for whenever you and I are going to enjoy it. Think about this. God the Father, who has granted us our salvation from the beginning of time, has reserved your inheritance with Him for the day that you will enjoy it. This reservation is secured by God. Additionally, it is protected by God. Verse 5 says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this reservation made by God is also protected by God. So let me ask you, who is greater than God? Who is stronger than God? Who can outmaneuver God? Who can slip past God's watchful eye? Is there anything? Is there anyone? Absolutely not. You and I enjoy an inheritance secured by God, protected by God, that is number six, possessed by faith. No money can buy it. No work can secure it. No person can provide it. We inherit it As a result of the resurrection, it is secured by God, protected by God, it is possessed by faith. Seven and finally, it is to be realized in and for eternity. All because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God in His great mercy has not given to us what we deserve. Instead, He gave it to Jesus. And Jesus took it on the cross. He hung in our place. He suffered our pain. And all the while that was going on, you already had a reservation in heaven. Secured by God. Protected by Him. Possessed by faith. Easter is all about the resurrection. Easter is all about the great gift of salvation that is the result of God's mercy. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want you to ask yourself this question. What do I really and truly deserve? If we're honest with ourselves, and if we have a biblical worldview, we'll recognize that we don't deserve the goodness that God has given to us. We don't deserve an eternal gift of salvation that was reserved by the Father, secured through the cross, completed at the resurrection.
Father, we are thankful for this great thing you have done for us, that which we could never do for ourselves. As we think about the brutality of the cross, it is both a terrible, terrible thing and a wonderful gift for us that you would love us enough to allow your son to die in our place so that we could be freed from the power of sin so that we could look forward to an eternity freed from the presence of sin God we thank you for this great love that you've given to us through Christ make it new in our hearts make it real in our lives We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.